This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Success in the workplace takes on a variety of ways to achieve those goals, but one more common philosophy that is brought up in the new book by Google's Gopi Kalil is that you have to bring your own experience to help a company find success. And sometimes to do that, you have to make sure that you take care of yourself. The book is entitled The Internet to the Internet. And Gopi joins us on the phone, as does our friend Makul Panda from the Knowledge at Wharton staff. Great to see you. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, Thanks, Dan. Great to have you. And Gopi, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Mukul. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. So, uh, Gopi, uh, I wonder if we could start with the title of your book, The Internet to the Internet. What exactly is the Internet, and what is its connection to the Internet? Well, let's start with the Internet. The Internet, obviously, is one of the biggest forces created by humankind in terms of technology in recent times that has touched our lives in so many different ways, and we are all well aware of it, and we are quite enamored by this technology. But in the midst of all this, the most important technology that is accessible to every single human being is what is inside of us. And I refer to it as a technology, just to use a parallel framework, because it is still one of the most complex highly functioning systems that we know of, this combination of our brain and our body and our breath, our consciousness. And uh, it's a playful use of those two words, the Internet and the inner net. In a way, it is still a networked system that is inside of us that makes us function and think and come up with all this creative stuff. And that that is the origins of the title. And what I'm really trying to explore here is how do you manage those inner technologies in order to function well in this world, even as we deal with all of these outer technologies that the Internet encompasses. In in some respects, Gopi, what, the Internet uh, is something that probably has been a very important piece to business success in general over the years, but maybe something that is really being looked at a lot closer in the last few years because of the digital age that we're in? Yeah, you, did you say the Internet or the inner? The net? Internet. Oh, obviously. You know, every, see, that everything that we experience in life and everything that comes as an output, a creative output that humans have created, is in some ways processed by or is a function of your Internet. So in terms of experiences that we go through, whether it's a little piece of food we eat or somebody listening to this conversation and trying to make sense of it, if it is... Uh, a great thought leadership piece that's come from a knowledge at Wharton writer. All of that has to be processed by our brain and eyes and our ears and this inner set of highly functioning technologies. And the same way, whether it's the the miracle of all of uh, uh, smartphone technology or aircraft or a great idea on uh, Wall Street, it is produced by somebody's internet. It's a creative output of some person. So... That piece of inner technology or the internet is really what powers 
human innovation, creativity, and uh, what has driven us forward. Now, in the introduction to your book, uh, Pico Ayer, who is the author of The Art of Stillness and many other books, uh, he writes that technology is less important than the inner resources that we bring to it. And I wonder what your thinking is on, on that question. that technology can be used or misused is a big function of the person who is with the technology. A simple analogy I always like to use is fire. So fire as uh, an invention, an innovation, or a discovery as, as a natural force has been available to human beings. And it's an extremely useful natural force in that it can melt steel, you can cook your food, you can blow glass with it. But if you don't use it with care, you could burn yourself or you could burn an entire city down. And in the same way, all of these technologies have amazing power. And what you go on to do with it is really a function of the person who is using the technology. And I think it is, it is that reference uh, Peter was, uh, sorry, uh, Pico was talking about how the person who is wielding these technologies and how that person thinks, acts, behaves, the choices he makes, how present he is to the situation and the care with which he uh, takes full advantage of this technology is an important part of how these technologies are used. And we can't understate that importance. Tell us a little bit about about, about your story where this book is concerned and, and, and really how it helped you uh, really put the book together. Well, it's a in many ways, an accidental personal journey. I say accidental, meaning the, uh, Steve Jobs says you can only connect all the dots in the, when, in, when you look back on your life, sort of when you look into the rearview mirror. So if I look at my own journey, there have been two paths to it. One is a professional life where I went to engineering school and uh, went to business school, went to Wharton, and pursue a very active, successful career in Silicon Valley, and at this point it is at uh, Google. And even as I was doing all this, given the cultural accident of my birth, the fact that I was born and raised in India, I was surrounded by the the, the science of the inner technology, um, the wisdom traditions like yoga, meditation, etc., which in a natural way fell into my life. And I don't think I pursued them in a way I thought they would all get interlinked and connected later on in life. It was just two separate interests, passions, uh, and sometimes accidental discoveries that were coursing together. And now when I look back and now I look at this point in life, especially with the extreme amount of interest in America and rest of the world on practices like yoga and mindfulness and meditation, they have converged together in my personal life in a pretty remarkable way and they've been the source of both um, I would say, for lack of a better word, a high-quality, high-functioning life, as well as, more, more importantly, a life of joy and fulfillment and uh, thriving in this world. And those wisdom traditions that have been with us for 2,600 years seem to have given a lot of tools that allow me to deal with the day-to-day pressures of all of the information and the demands on my life that is brought by the internet. So this book really is that personal journey, the rituals I've developed, and what works for me, and I wanted to share it with my readers. 
So I have a question about exactly those rituals and strategies that you have created in your own life to find stillness. Yeah. Uh, could you uh, and and you write that uh, for the internet to operate at peak performance, it needs periods of quiet. So could you share, you know, how how what are the strategies that you've used to create quietness and stillness in your twenty four seven life? Sure. Yeah. Um, it can vary from something a little more involved, like a, a proper meditation session that could last. 10 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour as much time as I need it, or a yoga practice where I get on the mat and do it. And those are part of my core practices when I drop out when there is, and, and I'm not using a phone or a computer or looking at anything, not being distracted. I am more centered with mostly my eyes closed and just the sound of my breathing to accompany me um, and other other modalities in my case, like chanting a certain meditation mantra if I'm doing meditation or practicing the yoga flow and the postures and holding them in a certain way and breathing. When I do those practices, then I disconnect or I unplug from the Internet. And when I say the Internet, I mean it in the broader sense of the word with all of the technologies, the information, the distraction, and I plug into my Internet. So that is a time for me to go inwards and uh, friend myself and reconnect with myself. But even if you don't have any one of those practices, there are a lot more simpler ways also I talk about in the book that is accessible to everyone. So let me talk about two of them. One is a simple gratitude practice on my way to work every single day. I think of 10 things I'm grateful for, and it is just to shift my attention, shift our attention from (coughs) problems or the things that uh, give us stress to the things that are working well, the things that you can be grateful for, whether it's your health or whether it's the fact that you might have food to eat or your family or your friends or what you do for a living. There are many, many things you can bring your attention towards. And we all have a list of 10 things we can think of every single day. Or another simple um, you know, practice that I talk about in this book that is also accessible to everyone is when you eat your food, your lunch or dinner, just do it with a little bit of attention and mindfulness as opposed to simultaneously trying to answer email or watching TV. If you just take the few minutes to bring your whole attention to what you're putting into your mouth and the tastes and the flavors and the smells, you both enjoy your food, you digest it better, and you probably eat less because you're eating very consciously. But in the process, you just take a few seconds to, again, drop into the present moment, drop into your inner net. So in the book, I go through very, very simple, easy to practice rituals like that, all the way to other practices that need a little bit more of study and longer years of uh, trying, like yoga and meditation, that work very well for me. But that has to be, and I would think for a lot of people, it's a battle to be able to try and do those things in the course of a day because of the fact that we're so connected to email and to texting and to searching content online. And obviously our smartphones provide that. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a, the greatest challenge maybe that we face right now. Yeah, it can be a battle down or it can be this fun conscious choice we make that you know, I have the power to choose to disengage when I need to and uh, 
drop into myself. And you can even take windows of as little as one minute to do so, and it is available. But I think that choice is available for all of us as discerning, intelligent human beings. And it only becomes a battle if you let go of that control and you let these... Uh, you become a slave to this technology. So if so, if you uh, if you're in, in your yoga session and uh, take this with a grain of salt, and sure. you get and you get an email from Sundar Pichai, it, you won't answer that email until you get done. Well, I won't even know the email has come. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. The phone is nowhere near me. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm just I'm just checking. So so uh, Gopi, you talked about yoga a couple of times. So I have a question. Who exactly is a yogler, and and what can what can you tell us about how how yoga is uh, is, is is helping uh, people at Google live a conscious life? Sure. Okay. So at Google, there are communities of uh, Googlers who have different special interests, and if you just joined Google recently, you're called a noogler, and if you've been at Google for a very long time and now have a bit of gray hair, you're called a gray-gler. Uh, or gay Googlers are called gay Googlers. And my uh, and the name that I really love and I thought most creative is the community of carpooling Googlers are called carpooglers. Carpooglers. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and it is in that spirit that when I started at the company nine years ago and I started teaching yoga there, I gave that yoga practicing community, uh, people who practice yoga and led by other Googlers as yoglers. The yoglers are yoga practicing Googlers. And within the practice of the physical Hatha yoga practice itself, there are, if I look at the Mountain View campus of Google, there are 37 classes offered every single week. And this is Hmm. not counting all the other offices. You go to New York or Boston or San Francisco or London, you have yoga classes in those offices as well. So a lot of Googlers practice it. And it is a way for them. Uh, it's both a physical exercise as well as uh, mental meditative practice as well. They take an hour or hour and 15 minutes away from their routine. Again, leave their computers and smartphones behind and just form this connection with their bodies, with the inner technologies. And it's just the breath and on a blue mat as they move together led by a Googler yoga instructor or by a professional external yoga instructor, it is a time to drop into ourselves and do that check-in, which is extremely important for us to do on a regular basis as humans. Now, in addition to yoga, Gopi, you also uh, write about the role of music in a conscious life. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've integrated music into your life? Well, I listen to a lot of music, and more recently I picked it up as uh, as a performing art. I took lessons and I sing. And in particular, there are are many uh, music practices that, again, are designed to connect with the spirit. And there's something about music. It is universal. That's why every culture, every part of the world, there is some tradition of music. And many of these traditions are designed to, again, uh, help us, take us to a slightly different space where we are calmer, happier, joyful, and feel in some times a sense of oneness with all the other people that we might be singing with, if you're doing like congregational choir singing, for example. 
and that's where your music in churches and your music in temples. So there's one particular tradition that is a call-response tradition that comes out of India called Kirtan that I had been listening to and singing along for a long time growing up. But more recently, something opened up, something shifted, and I've become very attracted to it, and I started pursuing it more seriously and uh, actually came out with an album that's been out for a couple of years called Kirtan Launch. So even when I'm working and I'm trying to do work in a focused manner, I might turn on some Kirtan music, and I do use the Internet to listen to the music because there is plenty available, so I am using it as a resource. But it allows me to then cut away all of the other distractions and just zone in on what I'm trying to accomplish, particularly if it's a creative problem-solving that I'm trying to do. Do you have a favorite instrument of choice right now? Well, uh, the harmonium is the instrument that I really like that is used as a regular accompaniment to Kirtan music. So I'm, I play that and I sing along with that, along with the tanpura, which gives a, a, a background drone to accompany this music. Those are the two I play. But how much has that really it really centered you and balanced you uh, and, and allow you to, to be able to do your work at Google on a day-to-day basis? Well, I listen to it almost every day on the way to work. I, uh, it's my ritual. After I finish my gratitude practice, of course, to turn on some of the music, it just shifts me mentally and physically to be ready for anything that is thrown at me on a day-to-day basis. And I can't predict what will come towards me. All I know is there is uncertainty as new information uh, or what emerges out of a meeting or a conversation with a colleague or a client. And even at, uh, when I'm then at my desk and working, if I'm not engaged with another person, it I turn on music. I've got playlists in that particular genre, put on my headset and just focus on what I need to get done. It just centers me and grounds me extremely well. Some people use classical music. Some people use jazz that whatever works for you from a musical context, and some people don't need any music they prefer not to do with it. I am drawn to this particular style. So, you, so Gopi, you, you mentioned the use of music. You also earlier in our conversation talked about some of the strategies you use to create a stillness in the midst of a busy life. Uh, apart from these needs, there are also uh, there's the other challenge that almost all of us face in our daily lives is is that people think we have no time and this seems to be a common condition from from harried executives on the one hand to you know as as you you write in your book uh, farmers who, who who till the fields are also short say they are short of time uh, what techniques uh, you know would you like to share with people to manage the time better Yeah, Mukul, it's not an issue of lack of time. There is a physical law that applies to, again, every single human being, that there are 24 hours. So it's not that there is not enough time. It's looking at it, we have 24 hours. That is what is allocated to every single being on every single day. And it's a question of what do you do with that 1,440 minutes in a day that then determines how stressed you are about it or how you go through your life in a state of you know, joy and peace, which is the aspiration, which is a choice everybody would make if they could get to that point. And one way by which I ask people to frame it is if you're eating sensible at a buffet, at a buffet there is a lot of food available, 
and plenty of choice and enormous amount of portions available. If you're eating sensibly, you just pick from the buffet what nourishes you, what you need. And if you eat that, it's good for you in that it sustains you, it nourishes you. Whereas if you're reckless about it and try to eat everything at the buffet, it's not going to serve you well. You're going to damage your body and soon end up in hospital if you overindulge. In a similar way, I tell people, it's when you, if you try to do everything on your plate that you're supposed to do, that you think other people want you to do, that you're obliged to do, that you must get done, you are going up against a loss of physical, uh, of loss of physics. Meaning, if you stack up the time that is needed for everything that's on our plates these days, 24 hours is not enough. So, if you flip the problem and say, "Let me work on the most important things, the highest priority," and focus on that, and that can be done in 24 hours, then you change the problem. You look at it from a different angle. And for the rest, you either let go or you get somebody else to do it or negotiate back with the person who asked you to do it and said, I can't get it done, but I'll fit it into the next 24 hours tomorrow or three weeks from now. Those are the kind of strategies. So, it's, again, it's bringing a certain amount of clear thinking and consciousness to this problem and not letting it, letting you be overwhelmed by it and making those choices every single day, every single minute. So, Gopi, uh, you know, to, to come to one last question uh, for our listeners, I wonder what it is that you would consider the most important lesson that you hope people will take away from the in- Internet to the Internet. Uh, what would you tell them? The most important lesson I would tell them, Mukul, is that even as the world hurtles forward with all these amazing internet-based technologies that is now available to us that allows us to do things like hold a, hold a piece of technology called a smartphone the size of a deck of playing cards in our hands with which we can book our flights, order a cab, get a coffee from the coffee shop at the airport, and be entertained on the flight. It's pretty amazing that this little thing in your hands, the 79th organ, as I call it, is able to do it. So in the midst of all of that, it also can overwhelm us with so much of information and with the drinks and the peats and the pings and the tweets and all the demands it seems to place on our attention. In the midst of all of this, one thing that has not changed is that the most important technology every single person gets to use every single day is inside of us, starting with our brain, starting with our breathing. And the quality of our life is determined by the quality of how that technology functions, how that inner technology is optimized. And the answer to how to do that has been available to us as human beings, developed over the years, a set of great wisdom traditions. So my main message is use those practices, use those traditions that are available to manage your inner technologies and move them into a state of peak performance, move them into a state of optimized performance that then allows you to live a life, a conscious life of joy and fulfillment and high accomplishments as we take advantage of these outer technologies, the internet. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, 
please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.